0: Rich traditions, real applications. This is Discover the Truth with Garrett Metal Detectors. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Discover the Truth, a Garrett Metal Detectors podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. So, if you've been following along for a bit now, uh, you probably know that we've been highlighting some of the best, the brightest, the youngest, and the most unique metal detecting enthusiasts and professionals in the industry, telling their stories, telling their uh, you know, passion over audio on why they love metal detecting, and of course, getting a little more info on whether they use Garrett metal detectors and why. So today, our guest is not only an avid treasure hunter of 10 years, but he's also a reality TV star. A miner-turned-metal-detecting professional, George Wyant has honed his craft, and he's found a passion in the thrill of the never-ending search for buried treasure. He's so passionate, in fact, that it landed him a co-star position on National Geographic's show... Diggers, a metal detecting reality show. So, we're sitting down with George today to chronicle his past, his outlook on treasure hunting, and maybe we'll learn how to land a TV deal. George, do you have the secret sauce for us today?
1: I do. I do. I have the secret sauce <laughs> for everybody. Qu- quit your job. Hey, and buy that, a metal yeah, there we de- go. There we go. No, I'm we just go. Uh, don't. Don't
0: do that. <laughs> uh, George, I know your nickname on the show is also KG, which stands for King George. What makes you the king of metal detecting?
1: Well, you know, I'm not the king of metal detecting. It was just kind of a... Well, I I think I'm pretty good, but there's there's probably some better people out there. I haven't met one yet, but but I'm sure they're out there. No, I'm just kidding. But no, uh, King George, uh, all my buddies kind of gave me that name because uh, when we would go out, um, I seemed to find silver dollars. So I found... I found like five silver dollars before anybody in my group found any silver dollars. So they started saying, man, you're the king of silver. You're the king of silver. So they said, we're just going to start calling you King George. So that's how I got the name. It's 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 not an ego thing.
0: Hey, well, maybe you're being a little too humble. <laughs> I love it. So let's recap your journey into metal detecting to start. So you spent 17 years of your life in the mining industry, which I'm sure got you ready for the rough terrains of treasure hunting. Uh, what was that chapter of your life like while you were a miner, and why did you end up leaving that workforce?
1: You know, it's, it's a quite long story, but I will uh, try to narrow it down, you know. Sounds good. I know I don't want to bore everybody to death. Well, yeah, I was, I, I was born and raised in Montana, you know, hunting and fishing and, and going out. And I've always heard stories about, you know, treasure hunting and people finding old cabins. There's old cabins all over Montana and this and that. And I've always thought, you know, it'd be really cool to see what's around them cabins. Because I've heard stories about people going and finding like hidden caches, you know, because everybody used to hide their money, you know, during the Depression. And even after that or before that. You know, so they were always afraid somebody was going to come and rob them, so they would hide it. And I actually know a few old-timers that have actually found little jars of silver coins and nuggets and stuff by old cabins in Montana. So it's always been in my blood, you know, to, to go after treasure. You know, being an elk and deer hunter and whatnot, it was just part of it. So, what you know, so just getting a metal detector, you know, just kind of fit into to everything. But, I mean, I, I was a miner. I, I mined uh, Butte, Montana for 17 and a half years. I drove 240-ton haul trucks, bulldozers, backhoes, and everything. And then I ended up, you know, meeting this, this, this meathead called Tim Saylor. You know, he's my partner <laughs> on the show. But, uh, yeah, you know, and then I just, you know, and he had an old metal detector, an old White's metal detector, you know. So we're like, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to buy a metal detector. I know everybody in the valley. I know everybody around. I, I can get permission all over so uh, we went and we actually researched uh, metal detectors and we came up with the Garrett metal detector, a GTI 2500. It was an old green one. It was pretty, pretty big, you know, but it worked awesome. It was like a $1,000 machine. And Tim goes, I'm going to buy this Garrett, you know, 2500 And I looked and I'm like, that's a $1,000. I said, there's no way that I'm buying a $1,000 machine. And he's like, well, it's is what I'm going to get. So, you know, whatever. And <laughs> I'm sure he called me a loser or something. Yeah, too. right. I'm going to leave you in the dust there, KG. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I thought, dang it, I can't have You can't have them with a better machine. So I ended up buying the same machine. And, you know, and then we just started, you know, going out and uh, filming our, you know. Well, first we started going out. And the very first trip we went out, um, there were some, I knew where these old cabins were out in the middle of nowhere. And we we hiked down to these old cabins and we started going around. And after about an hour, I found a 1904 Barber dime. Wow. I, I was just, floor that that thing had been laying there, you know, for almost a hundred years at that time, you know, and I was just like amazed and we just started finding all this really cool stuff, you know, but, um, do you want me to go through the whole story or do you want to break it up a little better?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's break it up. I actually want to, um, lean into your, your mining background just a little bit more, but, uh, would you say that your time spent in that industry, uh, opened your mind up at all to the intrigue of treasure hunting? Uh, And if so, where do you see those worlds colliding, your time in mining, and then also, you know, becoming a a professional metal detecting hobbyist?
1: You know, my time in mining was awesome. I I always loved mining, you know, I'm a big believer in the mining industry. But, uh, you know, I mean, it, it had to do with finding treasure. Mining was quite a bit different than actually treasure hunting, you know, because you're getting the raw, you know, you're getting the raw ore out of the ground, and then you're you know, you're pulverizing it and you're separating the coppers, you know, from the silvers and whatnot. But I think a lot of uh, my interest in treasure hunting came from just, you know, all the old stories the old timers told me and all the hunting and coming across things out in the middle of nowhere and always wondering who was there and what was there. So that just kind of drove my passion. Did you ever find any great treasures while you were mining? You know, mining no, because it was just basically a big strip mine, and we would just go in there and <laughs> blow everything up and right. take it out. You know, so not
0: not quite as nuanced of a process. No,
1: but I did find a lot of native <laughs> copper. You know, native copper mm. that come on the ground and stuff like that. But, but yeah, but yeah, it's quite a bit different. But you know, you're I guess you're still searching for
0: something. So as you got more entrenched in metal detecting, uh, you know, from the moment that you got that first uh, Garrett metal detector, what were some of the most unexpected parts of getting comfortable with that process? Uh, you know, wh- where did you stumble initially? Um, you know, what were some areas that you found were more fun than you expected or more difficult than you expected? Kind of chronicle those early days as a hobbyist for us.
1: Mainly with metal detecting, a lot of people just don't have the faith in their machine, you know, they, they hear it beeping and they hear it squawking at them and stuff like that. And, uh, it's, it's hard, you know, a lot of times I'll go, sometimes the hardest place to go is a public park because there's so much trash out there. So many flip tops, so many torn up cans that a lot of people, they'll get kind of discouraged and then they'll just put their machine in there in the closet and forget about it. But a lot of times I found just kind of go somewhere different like an old swimming hole or an old old house where there was an old clothesline where there's not quite the amount of flip tops and trash because eventually when you get good enough you'll be able to tell the difference with that but but a beginner you know it's really hard for them so I like just try to find a you know you know some old house or some old playground or something that that don't have a lot of modern stuff in it I think that's the, the key and trust your machine. You know you're going to have to dig a lot of holes, but if, after a while, you're going to learn that machine. You're going to you're going to learn the subtle differences. You know, so you're going to be able to pick out the treasures amongst all that trash. Was it difficult at the beginning
0: to know what was treasure and what was trash, or or you know how to define that for yourself? Because I, you know, <laughs> the old adage, every man's Trash is another man's treasure, right? So it's not like there's a, a key guide. But I mean, obviously, there are some standouts. If you find something as storied as a, uh, a dime from what was it, 1904, 1908? I mean, that is, you know, that's definitely some treasure. But
1: how, how'd you go about, you know, making those tough choices at the beginning? What do you keep what you toss? You know, a lot of these new machines, they're not like your old machines. You know that the old timers had with all the knobs and all the buttons on them that beeped on everything made of metal. Because when you go to a, you go to any old home site or or a park or anywhere, there is literally so much trash in the ground that it'll drive you crazy. If you have a machine that beeps on every kind of metal in the ground, you know these novices, people that haven't done it before, they go out there and they, you know, all they dig up is nails and trash you know, they're gonna get frustrated. But these a lot of these new machines, you know, they're programmed to eliminate like to, to you know, ferrous and non ferrous. So you could go over like rusty nails and, you know, little pieces of, of, of trash and that machine won't even make a peep. And once you hit like a silver or a copper or a gold, aluminum or something like that, then it'll it'll ping at you. You know, and then there's a number system where you can, you know, a lot of times you could tell a silver quarter, you know, a lot of times it's, you know, it rings up like an 82 and a silver dime's like an 81. And, you know, I mean, you'll, you'll get to learn the numbers on your machine, but you just have to just keep at it and, you know, don't get frustrated.
0: What would you say were the toughest uh, downs of being a treasure hunter initially? Was it uh, mastering the gear? Was it finding the right locations to search? Uh, was it, you know, once you actually found something trying to decipher what to do with it, what are your thoughts?
1: You know, most of the stuff you find, I mean, you can get on the internet and figure out exactly what it was or yeah. what it is, you know, but a lot of, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't remember very many bad times at all. I mean, there's been times we go out and get our butts kicked, you know, and hardly find anything, but there was always something weird that would come onto the ground, whether it's a religious statue or or an old token from an old saloon or you know rings and jewelry and usually it's some weird things you totally don't even expect to come out of the ground you'll be looking for maybe a coin you're always searching for coins and then you'll pull out weird stuff all the time but very seldom you know i go out and i'm just miserable because it's it's just enjoyable being out for one yeah there's something special
0: about just being out in nature calmly searching for some treasure.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's nothing like it.
0: Do you find that treasure hunting and metal detecting are uh, more of a, a uh, personal or solitary kind of hobby for you and for others? Or do you find it to be an incredibly social thing that you go and try to do with others? What are your thoughts?
1: You know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of times that I kind of like to just go by myself and be left alone. But it's also really sociable too. Like we'll go to huge rallies, literally all over the world. In fact, we're going to be going to Russia here pretty soon, to a big rally over there. But it's it's really social, but it's really competitive too. So, like even when I go out with my buddies, you know, you know, it, you're always jealous. It's almost like going fishing, and the, and your your friend catches a bigger fish than you. It's like, oh, come on, you know. But I mean, a lot of people, there's there's a lot of old-timers that do it. You know, they just kind of want to go out. They want to be left alone, you know, and just do their own thing. And then there's other ones that just want to get a massive amount of people together and, and just go out and have a good time, and maybe they'll find something.
0: I know that you said one of your first pieces of gear was a Garrett metal detector, Um did it immediately become your go-to provider from the beginning after you you got that first metal detector? or did you have to shop around and try some different brands to really find the gear that works for you?
1: You know i've I've always had, you know a ton of confidence in my garrett gear. in fact, i would I would use it and learn it so much that even when a brand new garrett machine would come out, I'd be terrified to use it because I knew my old machine so well, you know, but then I would take time and I would take the new machine out and I'd start learning it and figuring it out. And I would compare the two once in a while. And then, you know, it would just be like, wow, yeah. Okay. I like this. It's a little bit lighter. It's, you know, it separates a lot better. You know, it's easier to tune and whatnot. So then I would just progress up till, you know, I just work. I actually tried uh, a couple other ones, you know, that my buddies had and stuff like that. But I don't know. I just always went right back to the Garrett. And do you have any
0: sort of um official relationship now with Garrett after uh becoming a reality T V star? And if so, break down that relationship a little bit and what it's uh it's been like working with Garrett a little more closely.
1: You know, um, Vaughn Garrett, you know, he's uh, Charles Garrett passed away, you know, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But, but Vaughn Garrett, he, he, he runs a company pretty much now, him and his mom. But, um, you know, over the years, it's honestly, it's like a family. I've never seen a company that, that's more dedicated to, you know, the, the people that support them, you know, like whether it's an employee or a or a, or a person like me, you know. But, I mean, yeah, we started um, working with them in the beginning because we we were afraid we were going to get sued, you know, because we had uh, all of the, you know, metal detectors. In the beginning when we were making our own DVDs, we were were running around going crazy and falling down and jumping into cricks and all that crazy stuff, and we didn't want to get in trouble. So we approached Garrett and said, hey, you know, we're using your machines and, you know, is it all all right if we do this or we film with them? And they said, yeah, not only is it all right, but – we're going to send you some stuff. So they sent us some hats and shirts and all that. We thought we were the we thought we thought were the greatest, you know. We thought we won the lottery because we got a couple hats and shirts. But it just kind of progressed now that we, you know, that, that we're reps for them, you know. And we just travel all over the world for Garrett, representing Garrett. And like I say, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine being with anybody else. Well, I'm sure they
0: appreciate the support as well and the, uh, you know, the consistent use of their gear. So... <laughs> Shout out to KG. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> I mean, our show, like, say, it was the number one show on National Geographic for for several years. Yeah. And and it was wor- literally worldwide. In fact, I think it's airing in France right now, which is crazy because it's been off the air here for a while.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think treasure hunting is not particularly um, siloed to American culture, right? It's something that taps into mystery and curiosity in just about anyone the idea that you can go around and you can be the person to discover some ancient history uh, and reconnect with potentially some old cultural roots i think that's exciting for a lot of people regardless of if you're in the states or not so really cool to see that your show makes its way all the way to france um you know speaking on your show i want to touch base on on your background there, which is probably one of the more unique parts of your journey in metal detecting. So of course, like you've said, you spent several years as the star of Diggers on National Geographic, a metal detecting reality TV show. So what was the experience like taking, um, you know, the day-to-day of treasure hunting and molding it into reality television?
1: <laughs> you know, it, it was really, it was a lot harder than people think because, you know, we had a uh, National Geographic and ourselves, we always said, you know, we'll never put anything in the ground and fake a find. We're just not going to do it. Right. So, so, I mean, we had a lot of pressure on ourselves and the network, you know, to actually find treasure or not really treasure, but just really cool, interesting things. Whether it's a, an ancient axe head or an old file that some guy used in a farm, you know, that's all really cool stuff. But, you know, we would, you know, we had a lot of pressure and like we would be gone. Like literally I would, I took a six month leave of absence from my mining. My, uh, basically the vice president was a huge fan of what I was doing and he was a big supporter of me. So he gave me six month leave of absence. But when we left, you know, I have a wife at home, you know, that's working night shift in an emergency room. I got two teenage daughters, you know, and then pretty soon it's like, poof, I'm gone. So I mean, it was stressful and hard on the family. I mean, mean, everything worked out, you know, but, but heck, I was gone three weeks. I would come home four or five days. I'd be gone another three weeks because we had to get all these shows made. I think we did 18 shows the first year, and we did 28 shows the second year, which is a ridiculous amount of shows to do in a year.
0: That's a lot of shows, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. But, I mean, it was hard. I mean, it was stressful. You're living out of your suitcase. You're moving from hotel to hotel, but you get to find, I mean, incredible treasures. Like, we have the only known artifacts from the Hatfield and McCoy feud. We got bullets from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. We got bullets from Billy the Kid. We got, you know, we have, we found parts of an atomic bomb in Florence, South Carolina. You know, we have uh, a pewter round ball that was during the revolution or the, yeah, col- colonial wars where the, uh, the like, these settlers were fighting with Indians. And they fired so many bullets, they melted, they lost all their lead. So they started melting their pewter silverware down and making musket balls out of their silverware and, and fighting the Indians with them. And I actually found one of those. I mean, just I, so much stuff. We found Steve Jobs' time capsule in Aspen, Colorado, with the <laughs> original. I mean, just insane amount of history we have found, which is, you know, I, I look back sometimes and I just can't even believe that we were a part of all that.
0: Did you feel like you had to change your approach or the way that you expressed any of the passion around why you liked uh, or you know, why you were professionally invested in metal detecting while you were on the show? Or you know, did your outlook on being a metal detector change after having the cameras on you while you were doing your craft?
1: No, I mean you just you have to be real careful. You have to make sure what you're doing, you know, because you're going to be scrutinized no matter what. You know, you're going to have <laughs> yes. you're going to have people like you, have people hate you. It doesn't matter, you know. So you just try to always do the right thing. But you know, we were really, you know, really careful. What was one of the hardest parts about being on TV is what people don't see is how much um, camera and footage they have to do before you could even walk out in the field and actually start searching for treasure. You know, it's, it's frustrating. You know, you gotta do walk-ups, you gotta go drive-ups, you have to do talks, you have to do interviews. There's so much stuff. And then Tim and I were like, like caged animals, you know, when they finally let us go search the fields, you know, we were, we were running around like crazy. We would actually, the camera guys would lose track of us and they'd be screaming for us. And, you know, a lot of times we would get into a spot and we'd start finding a lot of really, really cool stuff. And then we would start filming it and whatnot. And then, uh, and then once you get done filming it, it's like, all right, let's go to the next spot. And we're like, no, there's so much stuff here still to find. Now we got to leave. They're like, yeah, we got to go to another location. I'm like, oh, come on.
0: All right, we just got to wrap up here with one more question, but how do you feel like the show impacted the metal detecting industry as a whole? Did you feel any kind of tangible change in how people perceived or talked about treasure hunting or metal detecting after Diggers blew up and and became the number one show on National Geographic? Uh, And, you know, if so, uh, how did that impact you? And then if you didn't see any big
1: change, uh, you know, why? I mean— our TV show, literally, I think it it was it started like a, a new gold rush, but only everybody has metal detectors. Unintended, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's just, I mean, insane the amount of people that we have brought into the hobby, and we try to do it the right way, you know. But um, I mean, I get every industry, every manufacturer, whether it's a competitor to Garrett or not, come up and thank us, just say, "Man, your show has changed." The way everybody, you know, we actually made metal detecting cool. That's what I always say. We're kind of like the happy Gilmores of metal detecting, you know. But it 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 blew up after our show.
0: And I'm sure it brought the idea that metal detecting is more accessible than you think to a wider audience. So for our last question here, George, tell us what your biggest tips are for getting into the industry and going from a newbie to a pro. You know, if if you're listening to this podcast or you're watching an episode of Diggers and you think, wow, I really want to do that. You're, you know, that could be me. I want to get out there and find some treasure. What are your
1: initial tips for getting out there and making it happen? You know, that's the awesome thing about metal detecting, Like, anybody can do it i mean anybody can go buy a metal detector everybody knows where there's an old location where they can go and search even if it's a new you know a new area you find a brand new ring you find coins it's just cool i mean you can get into the hobby for two three four hundred dollars on an entry level and you could still get machines i mean garrett has an ace line of metal detectors that I would. I still pull them out every once in a while, and I'm amazed at how good they work. And you can get into them two, three, four hundred dollars, you know. And uh, I mean, you could. It's it's just incredible to me that, that what I'm a part of. Because, like I say, a little little tiny kid can go out and go out with his family and go digging. Anybody can go buy a machine and go out there. And what you should do first, just take your machine, go out, take your time, and learn it. There's a million YouTube videos now out there on almost every machine you could think of that are going to teach you how to turn that machine on, just kind of press a couple buttons, get it programmed to coins and relics and stuff like that, and just go out and have fun. That's the main idea, have fun. I wouldn't plan on going out and getting rich doing it, but you're going to go out, you're going to find cool stuff for sure.
0: And hey, as long as the heart's in it, it's going to be a nourishing experience, even if you're not, you know, making millions. Right, right gotta love it it's all about the craft yep all right kg george wyant thank you so much for joining us on this episode of discover the truth by garrett metal detectors always a pleasure getting to chat and looking forward to bringing you back on if we'll get your co-star on next time
1: all right buddy daniel thanks for having
0: me on too buddy and thank you everyone for listening to this episode of discover the truth at garrett metal detectors podcast If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, make sure you find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Plenty of great influencer conversations there. And make sure you leave a rating and a comment wherever you're listening to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B.